I'll, I'll adjust and we'll just go ahead and dive in. <sighs> so, uh, kick off. Uh, thank all of you for joining us for the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective <clears throat> reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are in our second reading. Uh, we're calling it Anti-Oedipus 2021 uh, because we are cheeky, I guess. Um, today we're going to be reading uh, section two, part, I believe it's three, two dash three, which is the connective synthesis of production. Uh, we left off last week reading about the three texts of Freud and their major critique of Freudian psychoanalysis. And now they're moving into what they believe is the function of the unconscious, the machine that is the unconscious and how it works. Uh, from here out, it's really going to get very specific and it is really fun. This is the stuff I really dig. So, but I'll dive in right now with uh, the beginning of the connective synthesis of production. Given the syntheses of the unconscious, the practical problem is that that of their use, legitimate or not, and of the conditions that define a use of synthesis as legitimate or not. Take the example of homosexuality, though it is something more than an example. We noted how, in Proust, the famous pages of Sodom and Gomorrah, Cities of the Plain, interlaced two openly contradictory themes, the fundamental guilt of the accursed races and the radical innocence of flowers. The diagnosis of Oedipal homosexuality with a mother fixation of a dominant depressive nature and a sadomasochistic guilt was quickly applied to Proust. In a more general way still, some critics were too quick in discovering contradictions, either in order to declare them irreducible or to resolve them or to show that they were merely apparent, according to preference. In truth, there are never contradictions, apparent or real, but only degrees of humor. And inasmuch as reading itself has its degrees of humor from black to white, which it evaluates the coexisting degrees of what it reads, the sole problem is always one of allocation on a scale of intensities that assigns the position and use of each thing, each being, or each scene. There is this and then that, and let's make do with it. Too bad if it doesn't suit us. Where do we start? When Proust is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, what he's really talking about then, right, is like the, the, the deceptive nature behind the signs that we share with each other because they, 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 they imply and show us the existence of an entire world of that person that we don't take part in where these signs are coming from that we then have to decipher. Like, so he's saying like, like, like Sodom and Gomorrah represent the two actual unknowable internalities of each of the communicating parties. Right. Is that what he's talking about? Like, uh, no, no, I think that's, that's how I kind of took it. Um, the, the way he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah or internal contradictions, the sort of classic Freudian way of looking at, oh, uh, a person believes these few things uh, as, let's call them whole objects, uh, and they have these inside of them, and there are contradictions, and those contradictions are the things that cause us to have issues, uh, the, the problems of sort of your internal systems. And they're saying, no, no, it's, there are never contradictions, apparent or real. It's about degrees of humor. And uh, Ken has a uh, great uh, link that he posted uh, called Humorism, which is not uh, necessarily about... Uh, all, 
Sorry, All the ahead. deceptive. Sorry, here I just found this uh, from Proust and Signs. Uh, all the deceptive signs emitted by uh, a loved woman converge upon the same secret, the world of Gomorrah, a kind of a priority that jealousy discovers because the world expressed is always a world that excludes us, even when she gives us a mark of preference. Uh, so that, that's, that's kind of like what he's bringing up here, right? Uh, we interpret all the signs, but at the end, uh, we come up against the sign of Gomorrah is something like we, uh, a world we cannot enter in which the other person lives. So there's, I mean, if I can just interject for a second, uh, that, that sort of idea is in that tale, right? Um, with, with it ending, uh, where, where you can't look back as this at the city as it's about to burn and then you look back and you know you turn into stone and this is recapitulated in the uh in the orpheus tale right it's it's the exact same thing with um i can't remember his na her name but the uh uh the lady he loves or whatever as they're about to walk out of hell i can't remember who looks back whether it's him or her mm, thank you and uh, and yeah, it's like this uh, this world that you can't look into, um, but you can. And and I don't know if it's necessarily about the sublime, but this is a point about the sublime. And uh, and um, Schelling makes this point about the sublime, and I think Schiller too, uh, that it's this limit to what's reasonable or whatever. But at the same time, it completes one's like aesthetic and moral education or whatever to be able to be to to know about these limit experiences. One of them being able to like fully disclose another person's universe. I'd be a, a bit careful here, though, because what what we're saying might that, that very well may apply to Proust and Signs. But I think this first paragraph they're talking about how Proust uses two contradictory themes and how there's not actually a contradiction between them, right? So there's a there's a point there, which is going to tie us back to like what they're dealing with in this first paragraph and this, this section, right? Uh, which is going to be, how do we know, or how do we, not even just how do we determine, but what um, happens when uh, the, the use of the syntheses are illegitimate, right? What are the conditions for an illegitimate and legitimate use? And if it's not going to be in terms of contradiction, right? So if, the ter if what defines illegitimacy is not contradiction, but conditions, right? That seems to be the big move they're making right here. So if we go back to like the example of Proust, Ben was bringing up, and, and even um, where Brooks and Ken were taking that with Freud, right? So there's a way in which psychoanalysis will use Oedipus to resolve contradictions, right? We've seen how um, psychoanalysis is going to be under scrutiny in this section for illegitimate use of the three syntheses, right? So in resolving the contradictions in Proust through like the sadomasochism and the mother aspect, there's going to be, an, I think what they're driving at is going to be an illegitimate use of the synthesis here. It could be, but there, there is still um, Freud. Um, also wrote a book about jokes, jokes in relation to the unconscious. So there is still a degree of humor in Freud. And what he applies to the relation of the unconscious, I think that it is 
just the Udipo unconscious, which, which is um, at the, the trial here, of, uh, which we are holding trial for, and not uh, Freud's general unconscious yet. Um, we are not there, I suppose, because in the jokes in the relation to the unconscious, there is just this unspoken um, relation people have to words and sentences, which uh, we find humoristic, which we get, um, which is part of the unconscious. So I think it's it's not yet uh, the the version from Freud, it's just um, bringing a polarity to it by making it about this or that, which is a typical French sentiment because Sartre also wrote a lot about the phenomenology and the, nah, the existence of things and the relation of the person to the existing object, which also um, came forward in a paragraph about this or that, um, which is a relationship people have um, if cognitively to uh, the, the objects uh, in the world. Um, so that's, um, and it's, it's, it's still, of course, it, uh, that's maybe continue. <laughs> One of the things that's important, if, if uh, you have not read Proust, we probably should explain the scenes that they're talking about, the handful of pages that they're referring specifically to, because no one has yet. Um, the main character, the narrator uh, inside of the fourth book of In Search of Lost Time, uh, is uh, hanging out in this amazing orchard with the, these gorgeous flowers all around him. It's the Duchess's flowers, I think. Um, and... Uh, he's watching them get pollinated, bees going between, and he's very, the tone and the way he's describing it, uh, he's talking about it as this very natural, simple, beautiful process. And then he comes across two men who are having sex in the area. He's able to see them as well. The tone shifts, decidedly. Uh, not super hard. It's intended to be a little bit open. But that is the uh, specific moment they're talking about, is that juxtaposition between, on the one side, uh, as they say, the flower's radical innocence, where even though we're observing the set flowers having sex, which we are, it's not how we know it, but that's what's happening. And then there's this hyper-base act of, uh, as uh, they're referred to in the novel, the homosexuals as the, uh, the cursed races are also having, the two guys are over having sex in another place in the area. And it's seen as uh, this interesting sort of, I don't know, everyone's got a lot of interpretations. That's the scene they're talking about. The difficulty is that that scene has a lot of interpretations, which is, I think, what they're referring to here. Uh, Beckett, uh, for example, at one point said that it was, what did he say? Um, I had the quote up on my screen somewhere. Um, Samuel Beckett uh, said, flower and plant have no conscious will. They are shameless, exposing their genitals. And so in a sense are Proust's men and women. They are shameless. There is no question of right and wrong, which is something very Beckett. Um, conversely, the entire scene is uh, where people started to assign and say that, well, obviously Proust is latently homosexual and he's dealing with these things because he doesn't have a good relationship with this. If you look through the books, you can see he has terrible relationships with the law, with men, with all of that. So it's obviously his father. Like this, this was, this is, how a lot of people interpret these things and definitely did around the time of this 
especially. So I think they're doing this as more of a direct response to me. They're doing it as a direct response to uh, the critique that a lot of people had of, of like basically hyper simplifying a lot of what was done inside of Proust's book by grabbing the whole objects, putting him in relation directly to them, triangulating his place, and then saying, oh, this obviously says, uh, this obviously says the things we need it to. These other things, oh yeah, no, they don't work for our theory, but fuck them, we don't care, uh, which is their last line here. Uh, there is this and then that, and let's make do with this, and oh, too bad if it doesn't suit us. Um, it's kind of that last bit. It's, how, actually, it's, how I read. it's actually very simple, because if you um, view that scene from the perspective of the homosexuals, then of course the flower is perverted, like Beckett um, suggests in a way that uh, because like when you make love, you make the other person your world. Um, I assume that's the same for homosexuals as heterosexuals. And um, when you write it from a perspective of you, of course, um, have not you 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 don't have the perspective of the homosexuals. You don't make the flowers your world, but you have this and that. You have the homosexuals and you have the flowers, which are two uh, separate things. So it's, of course, because they're human, because flowers can be anthropomorphic. It is a tough um, way to look at this or that. Because there is a certain sense of humanity. But, of course, uh, there is still the difference because, like, a flower can't love. And love is intrinsic to the human condition. So the loving homosexuals are making, are, are basically um, taking his writing and transposing it towards uh, a maybe an, an Oudepol sentiment, of course, if you read it that way. But they disagree on that, and they say no, they don't, this scene is not perverted by the homosexuals, because the flowers are there, and they have the same value. You could also, as a viewer, anthropomorphize the flowers. Um, make them part of your world, just as much as the homosexuals. Um, no, I'm going to I'm going to agree with all that, but I think that specifically this paragraph is trying to talk specifically through the legitimate or illegitimate use of the syntheses, and to them, the illegitimate use is the separation and triangulation based on whole objects within someone's unconscious, and that's their argument, kind of that they're making. I think I think all of what you're saying is I think spot on for the larger picture of what they're getting at, but specifically for this paragraph because a lot of people haven't gotten as far as uh, you have in this book. So it's uh, just the specific thing they're just kind of pointing at is uh, that moment. And some critics were too quick in discovering contradictions, either in order to declare them irreducible or to resolve them or to show they were merely apparent according to preference. Uh, that is the, that's the specific thing they're laying at critique, which I think uh, I'm going to uh, apologize for interrupting. I do want to move on, Joe. Uh, to the next paragraph because i think some of what you're saying is also in there um i'm just happy you agree with me that's all yeah no no it happens sometimes don't worry <laughs> <laughs> um in this regard it is possible that charlotte's coarse admonition is prophetic quote a lot we care about our old grandmother you little shit 
For what does take place in, in Search of Lost Time, one in the same story with infinite variations, it is clear that the narrator sees nothing, hears nothing, and that he is a body without organs, or like a spider poised in its web, observing nothing, but responding to the slightest sign, to the slightest vibration, by springing on its prey. Everything begins with nebula, the statistical holes whose outlines are blurred, molar or collective formations comprising singularities distributed haphazardly, a living room, a group of girls, a landscape. Then within these nebula or these collectives, sides take shape, series are arranged, persons figure in this series under strange laws of lack, absence, asymmetry, exclusion, non-communication, vice, and guilt. Next, everything becomes blurred again. Everything comes apart, but this time in a molecular and pure multiplicity, where the partial objects, the boxes, the vessels, all have their positive determinations and enter into aberrant communication following a transversal that runs through the whole work an immense flow that each partial object produces and cuts again, reproduces and cuts at the same time. More than vice, says Proust, it is madness and its innocence that disturb us. If schizophrenia is the universal, the great artist is indeed the one who scales the schizophrenic wall and reaches the land of the unknown, where he no longer belongs to any time, any milieu, any school. As I was saying, Joe, I think some of what you're saying in here you were, it comes back in this paragraph, I think, uh, in, a, in a really crisp way. Um, the specific thing they're talking about here, and they will get into it again later, and we will spend a lot of time discussing this, is uh, the way that they're talking about the, the, molar, uh, the molar items, the collective formation uh, comprising singularities. Um, when we talk about innocence or a garden or a house, uh, it's a large conglomerate of a whole shitload of things inside of it. We see that, we say that, it's a great idea. It's a, we'll call it a whole object. Uh, but it's filled with divisions. Once we look closer at the house, we begin to separate things out. This is the bedroom, the living room, the front door, the uh, aviary, if you have one of those. I don't know why I fucking thought about aviary. I was reading a comic book last night with one. What the fuck is wrong with me? Um, you, you have these moments... Uh, the, these things that you're able to see and you, you begin creating divisions. And as you do that, you actually, if you go far enough, I think is what they're saying here, that you end up getting once again blurred because the things are blurry. When I say house, where does a house end and another one begin? Like we, in order to know that, we have to divide things up further. Well, the house has the yard, so does that one. Well, this one has, has a fence. Well, where is it divided? Like in order to find that line, we have to continue dividing. But if you keep dividing, you actually pass through blurry again in order to get to what they are calling partial objects, the, the molecular, the pure multiplicity of everything, the little bits of things that we can't even necessarily directly describe and talk about. These partial objects themselves are this bedrock of things, uh, the molecular. Uh, it's a beautiful movement from molar to molecular in the explanation here. Am I far off? No, I think you are spot on, and I have um, uh, in my um, visions, um, I, I, I just grabbed the Negaristani book I'm reading right now, which um, I think adds to this in a very nice way, if you let me quote it um, one second. Um, there, it's also an opposition, and I think it's also a molar molecular opposition. 
So first off, uh, we have the molecular mass of fuzzy gray contact with the heap of black. Screeching noise from the direction of mass of fuzzy gray. But what it is not, excited monkey touching the monolith, monkey screams. So this is like very descriptive of what is underneath everything. Like if you sometimes maybe people can um, identify with this, sometimes the world turns black. You sort of distance yourself from everything and you are not gone. The world is not gone, but it's simply um, not a tiny fragment which you actually want to interact with. You have like, let's say the flowers again, you have the flowers which you want to interact with, but you can't get there because it is all black. And this is the difference between the molar and the molecular, where the molecular is like um, the, the blackness, where you take everything inward. So the whole world is basically this shape, this one shape, which comes in immediate, in, 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 in like, an, it has an immediacy. And um, on the other hand, you want to interact with one piece of this world, with like this lamp or this computer or this device. And um, that is uh, the, um, the molar, um, which you can't always get at. And um, Schizo, I'm not sure um, where he fits in, in, in this situation, but I thought it was nice to take a bit of Negaristani and um, add them to this mix. Um, but um, yeah, sure, I, I'm, I, I'm yeah. finishing. Uh, yeah, no, um, uh, we got asked, uh, what is the context of a lot we care about our old grandmother, you little shit? So it's been too long since I've read Proust. I'm currently rereading all of it. I haven't gotten to that point yet. And uh, the versions I have don't have the literal same translation. So. Not able to directly find it, I think. Eh, someone's going to tell me I'm really fucking wrong. Um, I think it's from the second book. Uh, the character, I'm going to mispronounce everything. Mouseguard, I want to say. I've been reading Mouseguard, the comic, so I want to say Mouseguard. Um, the way that he talks and screams at people uh, is like this really interesting like bursts of screaming at people and calling them little shits. He has one person he's specific. Yeah, second volume of In Search of Lost Time. I'm sorry. Um, the whole series of Proust, the whole thing. This is book two. Uh, there's a huge climax with Nosgard where he basically just loses his shit and screams, you little shit, blah, blah, blah. How uh, a lot of good it's done me, you little shit. I think it's in that context of that, but I'm not... I'm not at that point yet. Literally, I'm like two weeks away. So I'll be able to answer that soon, Remke. Sorry. If anyone knows that book better, this would be the time to jump in. So uh, I found the section uh, by searching the word shit, which is actually in this book quite a bit. Um, I'm going to read just a little bit apart. I don't think it's the grandmother scene, but it's got to be the same character. Um, 
if I have learned one thing over these years, which seems to me immensely important, particularly in an era as ours, overflowing with mediocrity, it's the following. Don't believe you are anybody. Do not believe you are somebody because you are not. You're a smug, mediocre little shit. Do not believe you're anything special. Do not believe you're worth anything because you aren't. You're just a little shit. Keep your head down and work, you little shit. <laughs> like, goes on for a few, like a page. Um, I think it's from that. I'm thinking it's from that scene. Um, does anyone have questions on the molar or the molecular or anything else to add to this part? Yeah, I'll add a little bit to that. So I think what you, you've been saying about, um, especially in your, your take on the first paragraph, is really well um, well poised here. So we're seeing how what's going on between these two aspects, that there's not contradiction here. Even though we might question right the role of guilt in that, on this one side, just that we might question the relationship of guilt and the flowers, which I think you did a nice job pointing out how the two juxtapose, but the relationship isn't one of contradiction, right? So it's not that kind of problem. So what we see going on here with the narrator and um, they're, where they're taking Proust right now is the narrator is going to act as the body without organs here, uh, right? So they're right. It is clear that the narrator sees nothing, hears nothing, and that he is a body without organs, or like a spider poised on its web. We know where they're going with this. Um, the thing I want to point out here is with what they're laying out here in terms of the molecular and the molar, right? So they're showing us how the body without organs at one level has this um, transit, I don't want to say transitionary phase, serves as a limit between the two right and we're seeing how on the in the molar we have this um statistical aggregation we have these collective formations comprising singularities distributed haphazardly right so there's not like an organization um from like a rationality here we're seeing how things kind of um take shape haphazardly to use their word right the asymmetry strange laws at back and that at the, at the molecular level, we see how the narrator plays in with different arrangements and connections, right? Where we're seeing the flows being cut by the partial objects and um, differentiated in that manner. So this is helping us get like into that. scene here of this, um, how, these, how these syntheses function under these conditions. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to actually jump to the next paragraph because it continues with examples of, as a quick little preface, it's important before I read this, uh, more Proust. There's a lot of Proust coming. Uh, we will at some day do Proust and Science, which is the reason I'm rereading all of this book. But uh, uh, Albertine is the narrator's uh, first kiss. Like, someone else has to have read this this fucking tome of, of stories. Uh, I want to say Albertine's the first kiss. It's this big deal. It's actually really beautifully written. Uh, um, really beautiful, be beautifully, beautifully written. Um, Some of us were too busy cleaning our rooms, Brooks. Oh, yes. Well, not everyone. Everyone has to be a lobster someday. Um, all right, I'll give it a read. Such is the case in an illustrative passage. The first kiss given Albertine. Albertine's face is at first a nebula, barely extracted from the collective of girls. Then her person disengages itself through a series of views that are like distinct personalities. 
with Albertine's face jumping from one plane to another as the narrow leader's lips drawn nearer her cheek. At last, within the magnified proximity, everything falls apart like a face drawn in sand. Albertine's face shatters into molecular partial objects, while those on the narrator's face rejoin the body without organs, eyes closed, nostrils pinched shut, mouth filled. What is more, their entire love tells the same story. From the statistical nebula, from the molar entirety of men-women loves, there emerged the two accursed and guilty series that bear witness to the same castration with two non-superimposable sides, the Sodom series and the Gomorrah series, each one excluding the other. Uh, the, the scene where he kisses Albertine uh, is very much about that, the way that it's described. And if you have ever had a first kiss, and if you haven't, you will someday. But if you have, it's very much that uh, intensity. If you think of the moment to moment, and it's how Proust describes it, it's really vivid. Uh, as he's looking at her, he sees, you know, she's, she's gorgeous, and he's comparing her very much to other girls and all of that. He sees this sort of sea of girls with her as the single face within it. As he gets closer, it becomes just her. As he gets even closer, the description of the smell of her skin and the way that her eye moves or her cheek moves or her lips and how they tremble, like everything becomes very, very, very partial objects. And so this is, again, a, a transit to help explain when we move from molar to molecular and the way to think about through all of those. Um, earlier, uh, Kale, Michael asks, uh, uh, why do they say, you know, boxes for partial objects? The way to think of partial objects is uh, as opposed to full ones. It's very easy. Partial objects are irreducible uh, in, in and of themselves. That's kind of their constant sort of thing that they keep saying, that they're mocking. People believe these things are irreducible, and they're not. Uh, the kiss of a lips is not a singular thing. It's a, it's, a it's a huge collection of a lot of little partial objects that are connecting and disconnecting and, and firing off and all kinds of stuff, as they're going to describe. The goal is to try to find how deep those go, because if we can still divide it, it's kind of not a partial object still. But I do want to continue the next paragraph unless someone has a thing, because it's about to finish off this point nicely. I just want to say that it's important that the castration is um, is in the molar, so it's it's you are totally becoming castrated in a way. It's not like a partial castration. Um, so I just wanted to say that I think I'm I'm not sure, but I think it's definitive that. Um, um, sorry, I'm I'm having this I, the other way around. It's um, molecular castration is molecular, and it's not molar. And I think it's throughout the book uh, this way. So um, maybe someone could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's um, like an important uh, of an easy uh, way to uh, identify with castration that it's always the molecular. I think. Castration always impinges on the molecular, but castration isn't necessarily something that exists in the molecular. That it is a molar concept and a, uh, as a thing, but but anti-production, which they will get into at some point, is produced in the molecular. Uh, like anti-production essentially kind of plays that role, but it's it, castration as a thing doesn't exist at the molecular level. The effects of it uh, do, but that's mostly through a lot of other complicated stuff. So we'll, we'll get to that. That's not... We're, we're only in the first synthesis for right now. Let's try to, I'm trying to stick Except, with it. So, but, but thanks for explaining because I yeah. had trouble with that. So, uh, uh, I like your explanation, Brooks. Yeah, it's a, 
It's this is all complicated as shit. Don't worry. Um, next paragraph. This is not all, however, since the vegetal theme, the innocence of flowers, brings us yet another message and another code. Everyone is bisexual. Everyone has two sexes, but partitioned, non-communicating. The man is merely the one in whom the male part, and the woman, the one in whom the female part, dominates statistically. So that at the level of elementary combinations, at least two men and two women must be made to intervene to constitute the multiplicity in which the transverse communications are established. Connections of partial objects and flows. The male part of a man can communicate with the female part of a woman, but also with the male part of a woman or with the female part of another man. And yet again with the male part of the other man, etc. Here, all guilt ceases, for it cannot cling to such flowers as these. In contrast to the alternative of the either-or exclusions, there is the either-or, or-or of the combinations and permutations where the differences amount to the same without ceasing to be differences. It's, I'm, I just want to continue the next paragraph because I know what people are wanting to talk about. It continues this really quick. We are statistically or molarly heterosexual but personally homosexual without knowing it or being fully aware of it. And finally, we are transsexual in an elemental molecular sense. It's a really fun, interesting set of lines. It's going to be a whole thing to discuss. That is why Proust, the first to deny all Oedipalizing interpretations of his own interpretations, contrasts two kinds of homosexuality, or rather, two regions, only one of which is Oedipal, exclusive and depressive, the other being anedipal, schizoid included and inclusive. Quote, For some, doubtless those whose childhoods were timid, the material kind of pleasure they take does not matter, so long as they can relate it to a male countenance. While others, whose sensuality is doubtless more violent, give their material pleasure certain imperious localizations. The second group would shock most people by their avowals. They live perhaps less exclusively under Saturn's satellite, for in their case, women are not entirely excluded. But those in the second group seek out women who prefer women, women who suggest young men. Indeed, they can take with such women the same pleasure as with a man. For in their relations with women, they play. For the woman who prefers woman, the role of another woman, and at the same time a woman offers them approximately what they find in a man. I feel like someone's going to be just way better versed in a lot of this stuff than me. That one's a... The last no, two paragraphs uh, are beasts. Uh, one thing that like strikes me about this, uh, again, uh, I'm we're reading through Proust and Signs right now, uh, is he'll, he will make the... The, the series of Gomorrah, the 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 realm of the beloved and of Sodom, the realm of the lover. And then here he's saying that like each person will have like internal male and female that communicates with other persons, internal male and female. So like we are each having both of those series inside of ourselves, but they don't even communicate with each other inside of ourselves. So like the 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 world that we're excluding the people who love us from is different than necessarily the signs that we uh use when we are like loving them back and being excluded from their world i think that's but, i don't know ben aren't we talking about <clears throat> i mean 
this is like the desiring machine, right? So isn't it outside of the body without organs, just a small um, adjustment to what you said, because the rest was, I think, correct. Yeah, I might have used like a wrong word or two. I'll, 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 I'll totally admit that. Well, it's, it's of course, inside is um, correct in a way, but not from the body without organs. It's, it's right. just... I, that would, I would agree with you there. I'd give you that point. It, I should have said like on the surface of or... <laughs> well, that, that, it's, it's, it's very nice. Everybody is so agreeable today. I, I like this. <laughs> it, it's, it's a really interesting set of paragraphs. But again, I think, Ben, I think you really put that nicely. It's the, the reduction of things and the ability for things to be basically partial objects and desiring machines connecting changes how we think about uh, how these groups or what desire actually is inside of the unconscious and how it operates instead of uh, the, the line at the beginning. Uh, we are statistically or molarly hetero, personally homosexual, without knowing it or being fully aware of it, and finally transsexual in an elemental molecular sense. Uh, it, it's just a very, very sp spot on, I think, view of how they see desiring machines working and I think how they operate in through the rest of this as well as ATP and, I mean, certainly through Proust and Signs. I have this uh, small anecdote. Um, let me know if uh, I'll try to phrase it uh, correctly because um, it's kind of hard because it was like when I was in, I think, like the second grade of elementary school, so I was a very small child. Um, there was this um, first grader who came um, to school and he was wearing a dress and it was a guy. And I kid you not, the, the guy's name was Bear. And he enjoyed, just he, he wasn't like um, feminine or anything. That's the thing. He wasn't a homosexual either. You know, it wasn't like, um, I, I, it was like the 90s and I don't think like sex change operations were really a thing, but he wasn't like an, an inverted or whatever. He, he wasn't like into being a woman. He just liked wearing a dress at, at a child's age, you know, and everybody accepted it. Nobody bullied him or whatever, because for him, it was such um, just a commonality. It was such a, 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 a yeah, van zelfsprekendheid. It was an, um, it was considered um, just the the way he, he was for him. I, 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 that's trouble with Dutch and English, you know, I sometimes lose my track of the, uh, but it, it, it's, in, in, in any case, the point I'm making is that the, 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 like the, how the desiring machines are organized within people can differ on a very early age. And um, I think uh, they're spot on. And it's, it's actually fairly strange that this late in the process that this is developing. Well, maybe not but because uh, previous uh, centuries were more restricted in a way. But sorry, I, I just want to, to give that small uh, piece of my mind. So maybe it, it, it's easier to visualize like a, a child like being innocent and 
liking um, just partial stuff of the feminine and like integrating it in his um, psych in such a way that it's oh, self-evident that that was the word i was looking for it's just it was for him self-evident that he wore a dress and for other people it was therefore self-evident also because you could see on his face and you could see his gestures like if you were a man and you like of course uh, what they're saying here you focus on the manly part like they they were at ease in him you know if you looked at him i think if he wore like just like pants and a shirt, like you would think something is wrong with him, with the guy. And um, yeah, these people exist, you know, who, who just, um, who are not like perverted because a child has no sexuality well, yet. But Right, right. No, and I think, so the the, the lines here, and it's it's towards the end, they start uh, really touching into, uh, as, as Michael brought out, the uh, Plato's uh, Aristophanes myth of the and androgyne, androgyny uh the the nature that uh apparently once upon a time all humans were round little <laughs> so, uh, just little pac-mans with four legs like round little things uh that were dude dudes on one side women on the other and the androgyne were the other uh they were the ones from the moon and then uh, oh no uh we had to get cut in half and so the men who desired men were the men before it's just this really hilarious myth they're kind of talking in that direction is how they use the words towards the end because they are talking about as proust would say uh making the other person their world uh where to combining the the joining and it's why they say things like we are statistically or molarly heterosexual at large like that's again the law law of large numbers however personally we are actually homosexual because uh, we are us like that's kind of how the subject works um and then uh at the elemental or molecular sense we are kind of whatever is being desired there's no such thing at the molecular level as man or woman that's not how it works uh at all uh it, in, in in sort of their view of things and they get into this later uh partial objects don't have a, a it's not a man object a, a penis isn't even a man object the tip of a dick isn't a man object or a woman object it's just a partial object and so like being able to sort of step beyond that when we're talking about such things and desires is i think the real goal of this paragraph um again trying to get us back to desiring machines and how they connect and what is connecting that it's not these ideas that are connecting but partial objects sorry jack go ahead no i i'm i really like what you're saying there because i think that's spot on um that's I, I think that's really a, we can compare it with the the platonic myth there but it's a little bit different right like you're saying at the molar level there's heterosexuality the either or of sexuality right so where we're seeing in Proust, do you relate sex, your sexuality to a man or a woman, right? Which he's uh, looking at here through countenance. At the personal level, we can see it in that sense too, right? Kind of like you were saying, bro, it's like it's had a very personal relationship. So you're kind of with, you know, there's a problem of identification there perhaps. But at the molecular it's, level... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, so you're spot on there that the desiring machines, what they're... In that second sense, that molecular sense that Proust is talking about here, you're spot on that they're not connecting for the sake of woman or mother, 
but that the transsexual nature is the functionality. So the reason we can get the same from either or, 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 or is because there's not that distinction of male-female. Because the partial objects can rearrange in the assemblage and connect differently in that first synthesis, which at the molecular level yep. is, is what's functioning there, as opposed yeah. to like, you know, how do I have sex with a woman? Or if I'm going to do that, how do I relate it to the countenance of a man, right? That either or again. Yeah, it's, um, I think, uh, some sort of uh, doubt, which must be um, either, um, like, basically sublimated to either the molecular or the molar, because the doubt, is, let's say the, oh, no, the no. either or. No? No, no, no. We're talking about pure positive. Uh, so the the way they were talking earlier is uh, about how we have to divide in order for the, mole the molar to not be fuzzy. But at some point we reach another stage of fuzziness where things start blending together and becoming confusing that we start entering the world of partial objects. But partial objects are that of almost pure positive. There's, there's not gaps in the same way that, that there is for literally anything. Uh, in, in the... uh, maybe, if, if I maybe can explain myself a little bit, um, I, I met doubt in like the uh, like Sartre's uh, conception of doubt, which is um, I think um, uh, 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 totally positive um, because it's like this cogito um, um, essential part of the cogito. So I I I, I made it. Um, I, I, I thought they may, I, I, that was maybe unclear. I, I thought I explained, sorry. No, no, so uh, for for the, the this scene, uh, there's a scene in Seinfeld that comes to mind whenever I read this, where George Costanza goes in for a massage. He thinks he's going to get a pretty girl, because Jerry just did, and instead walks this big, uh, you know, Nordic, blonde, uh, attractive guy. And George is like naked and the guy starts massaging his legs and working up and then it fades away. It comes to later. George is mortified, slowly walking around. Uh, it's like, why? what's wrong? He's like, it moved. Like, it's that's the joke is that he was aroused by this massage he got from a man and now he's wondering if he's gay. The whole episode is about him wondering his own sexuality. That's the kind of the humor of it. Again, 90s. But my the point that I, the reason I connect to this is because it's the idea of, oh, it moved. Oh, my, my penis was aroused. Oh, I had sexual desire in this situation. It must be because I'm attracted to a man. I must be, that, that's not it. That's the whole point here they're talking about is like moving beyond the idea of you being, uh, your penis being, oh, I'm attracted to that. It's like, no, it's partial objects to partial objects. Technically, partial objects are all transsexual. It's not that you were attracted to man, you were attracted to the way this felt and the way all of these things were connecting. It's much more complicated than that. Uh, instead of just being this simple, like, oh, uh, yes, I'm just, I must be gay. Uh, and that's kind of their uh, setup. I don't know if George necessarily would be happier knowing that he probably had some level of molecular transsexuality, but like, I think like his neuroticism is something they speak to a lot. I, a lot of the stuff I think uh, flows back to sort of George's neurotic, shitty behavior. And the 90s, I think, did that in general too. But it's just this, uh, it, it, it feels like that's a lot of what they're talking about here. I think you're right about that. The only thing I would add is that, um, because we mentioned sublimation, 
because we're dealing with the molar and the molecular, right? I don't think we're going to find that kind of like, um, so sublimation, as I understand, occurs in relation to a superego, which is going to take a desire, right? Uh, it's going to condition it with some sort of social norm. Yeah, in a very simple manner. And the sublimation occurs where there's a tension in the unconscious that the ego needs to release for the id, but the superego is redirecting that. So you've got to find a way to um, to release the tension in a socially acceptable way, or really a superego uh, acceptable manner. And the reason I don't think we're going to see that here is because we're dealing with the syntheses, the molar and the molecular, where we don't really have a superego um, or I'm not even sure that we have a big other per se, regulating desire in that manner. We're going to, part, part, especially because we don't really have the ego in that manner to begin with. This is all like, you know, uh, this is all pre-subject, right? Well, I don't want to say put in Simone then, but this is like pre-I, yeah. Um, and we don't even have the ego in that capacity to begin with here, right? We're going to see how subjectivity is produced, you know, without really needing a fixed eye in that manner. But isn't it right that we are like uh, statically or in the either or it is part of sublimation and then when it becomes like dynamically or personally it changes but before that I think it's applicable and um, I think that 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 is what they meant with the uh, either or, or the, I have a different translation, so um, either or, or the, whatever comes next. So, I, well. I, di I disagree because of the, the functionalities here, and mm -hmm. because the um, desiring production is not being, I don't think it's being sublimated by a super ego, and then the tension's got to be released through a norm. I think what we're seeing instead is how the syntheses function in relation to the, um, the molar and the molecular, right? And we'll see later in chapter three how the socius plays into that and the, the creation of territories. But I don't but think there's a sublimation. Really quick, Jack, just real quick. I can just say, uh, I can say wholly, uh, sublimation is not necessary inside of their version of the unconscious and desire because social machines can invest desire directly into the social field. There is no mediation required by Freud's sublimation. Yeah, but but it's like they're, they're saying here, they're saying static. Um, they're, they're saying that we are heterosexual also. So they take the opposite of that, right? So uh, I, I say they give uh, a, an intentionally a wrongful explanation for a second. They say, um, like, statically, we are heterosexual. But personally, we are homosexual. And then the homosexual is, of course, the molar molecular... Um, no, 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 no. So let me let me try one more time. Uh, desiring machines make up everything. There is no secondary thing. Everything is only desiring machines and partial objects. That's it. Our grouping of things changes that. But the grouping of things is what is the molar. So at the very basic level, we only have partial objects. And partial objects have no homo or heterosexuality. In fact, they're essentially transsexual because any one of them can apply to any sex of any sort of thing depending on their usage and how they join up with other things inside of concepts. As those objects, uh, partial objects connect and the syntheses fire off, it creates a subject. The subject 
is itself, aware of itself, connected to itself, uh, encompasses its own desiring machines, looks back on its body without organs and goes, fucking A, that's me, I like it. Part of that is whatever sexual organs that that person has. And so naturally we are, as a subject and as an individual, and I'm doing that in hard, hard fucking quotes, we are personally homosexual. And then after that, because we are basically statistically at this point, uh, we just look at the law of large numbers and we just go, oh, most people are not, most people are hetero. Uh, probably because, of, I don't know, some genetic thing or the fact that that's just kind of the averages as the time being because of social machines as they exist. That there is no separation. The heterosexual is filled with partial objects that are transsexual and is also personally homosexual all at once in a singularity. I think the thing is that his translations got static instead of statistic. So where they're talking Ooh. about the molar, he's reading in terms of like, there's a fixity there, which would sound like a superego, right? So it should be statistical because we're talking about how, so there's desiring machines on the molecular and the molar. We have the social machines and that, how these like get aggregated and there's a statistical would be, kind of distribution. That would be, that would be a problem. Yes. Uh, just assume if there, if, if at any point a translation says Deleuze and Guattari are saying a thing is static there's a fuck up in the translation somewhere. Like anyone who's like, you know what they believe in is very specific static things that don't change. You can kind of assume that something's wrong uh, generally. Um, I'm going to, but I think the next paragraph uh, continues talking about what we're discussing here. So I'm going to continue into that. Uh, the opposition here is between two uses of the connective syntheses, a global and specific use and a partial and non-specific use. In the first, desire, at the same time, receives a fixed subject, an ego specified according to a given sex, and complete objects defined as global persons. The complexity and the foundations of such an operation appear more distinctly if we consider the mutual reactions between the different syntheses of the unconscious following a given use. It is first of all the synthesis of recording that in effect situates on its surface of inscription within the conditions of Oedipus, a definable and differentiable ego in relation to parental images serving as coordinates, mother, father. There we have a triangulation that implies in its essence a constituent prohibition, and that conditions the differentiation between persons. Prohibition of incest with the mother, prohibition against taking the father's place, but a strange sort of reasoning leads one to conclude that since it is forbidden, that very thing was desired. In reality, global persons, even the very form of persons, do not exist prior to the prohibitions that weigh on them and constitute them, any more than they exist prior to the triangulation into which they enter. Desire receives its first complete objects and is forbidden them at one and the same time. Therefore, it is indeed the same Oedipal operation that lays the foundations for the possibility of its own resolution, by way of a differentiation of persons in conformity with the prohibition, as well as the possibility for its own failure or stagnation by falling into the undifferentiated as the reverse side of the differentiation created by the prohibitions, incest by identification with the father, homosexuality by identification with the mother. The personal material of transgression does not exist prior to the prohibition any more than does the form of persons. This is uh, where we start getting it, and they will be very clear about this later on, but they asked early on, and they will ask again, Reich's question about why 
do people desire fascism? Uh, and they say often, people say they were tricked. Uh, oh, they're tricking, they're lying to them, they, they're telling them the other thing. And it's like, no, they also aren't tricked into Oedipus. That's not really the right way to look at it. These things aren't tricking people. They're because of, they are global people being shoved into a place they kind of don't belong in the unconscious. Uh, they naturally, because of where they're at, form desire in very definable, specific, and triangulated ways. That's how I read that paragraph. I really like this paragraph. If you don't want to jump in, go for it. Yeah, I think you're kicking it off well there. Um, so we're seeing how the, the two synth... I want to say the two syntheses. We're seeing the two uses of the connective synthesis here, right? We're seeing it at the molar use with global persons. Um, see if I can find this. A global and specific use as opposed to a partial and non-specific use. And the first desire at the same time receives a fit subject, an ego, specified according to a given set, and complete objects defined as global persons. Right, so on one hand, we're seeing the first synthesis, or the, fir the first kind of the first synthesis. There's a tongue twister for you. How that relates to global persons, how that relates to um, the, the aggregations and that. On the other hand, we're seeing on the molecular side how it works through partial objects. So we're looking right back into that last thing we saw where on one level we can talk about how there's like that either or distinction in sexuality, right? That enables like heterosexuality. But then we're seeing how on the flip side, the first synthesis it doesn't necessarily work through the connections in that either or. But on the other hand, is it either or or? And I'm kind of using the second synthesis to say this. But um with these connections and with the differentiations of flows and the machinic productivity that's happening here, to put it back in the first synthesis now, that's not really taking place um, intending for a complete subject, intending for global persons, right? Or like large collectives that are sort of homogenized. Yes, I, um, I suppose that um like the registration synthesis um, uh, or the like the production synthesis in relation to the registration synthesis, which is the, in between is the triangulation of the Udipol, which is um, the incest prevention is in a form code. So I think it's like, um, like, the the word of a magnet that that gets the uh, demagnified or whatever loses its its polarities um it's 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 become inept uh inert in a way because it's code so the the udipole is there but it's it's not active it is a code which is inscribed in the relationship um uh of the mother the father uh and uh, later on the sister um, or brother and um, mm -hmm. I think it, 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 the, the code is uh, it's, it's important to note that it's code because it's not named but I think that's between the production and the registra registration like uh, they communicate uh, in code I think it's er earlier mentioned in one of the earlier paragraphs and uh, I just uh, thought I should uh, share 
No, that's that's great. Um, the last sentence, uh, Bostgard asked, can we expand on it, uh, uh, rephrase or talk about it? The the last sentence, the personal material of transgression does not exist prior to the prohibition any more than does the form of persons. Uh, the way uh, Freud and psychoanalytic thought uh, believes that the Oedipus complex works, uh, can please tell me where I'm wrong here if I am, is uh, that the ego and the superego are essentially the interplay of it with the id in there. And between those three, that is that is the sort of interplay of your unconscious. You exist as part of that. You as a subject are uh, sort of the wrapper of these things and it's uh, you are imminent to them. They're putting the steps before that. They're saying, look, the subject, the person who, uh, the whole person, the whole form of you, uh, doesn't exist until long after uh, this sort of transgression exists, but actually even more so, the personal material of the transgression, the desire to fuck your mom, doesn't exist prior to the prohibition because of the nature of how the three syntheses work. You actually get the prohibition, it gets inserted because it's a demand for a whole object and a pointing of desire to it, as well as uh, the demand that you don't that sort of goes hand in hand. And because it's whole objects, it's added to the body without organs and your desires hit that. And the material of the transgression, the desire to actually do that thing doesn't exist until then because the subject and all these other things come long after. So this is how they start taking down the idea of Oedipus being this, uh, you know, thing that is uh, innate, learned, uh, an innate uh, sort of determinant of being a human. That's innate, and it, it's code right because it's instantaneous, and it is um, non-binary, um, in the sense of uh, sorry, it's it's non-judgmental. Uh, it's 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 not like an um, um, it, it's it's not yet um, um, a, a taboo. So it's right. It, it, no, no. You, you, a person doesn't hear the taboo or the thing and go, "Oh, that sounds fun. I should break that rule." It's a. It's like no. The, the, how it functions is by having these larger objects and these stories and these larger sort of things that we force into the unconscious. The way that the desiring machines operate is through this. Um, but actually, the last sentence does go into the next paragraph. Is there anything uh, that uh, we should go over here? Any questions? Any thoughts? Any comments so far? Because we're about to dive even further more into incest and Oedipus. Because I mean, who doesn't want that? I mean, we all do. Yes, um, as we're going into this, because we're talking about how the the two ways the connective synthesis are being used here, it's important to point out, too, that Oedipus creates global persons in a sense, right? It conditions how global persons will be created. So we see, uh, in reality, global persons, even the very form of persons, do not exist prior to the prohibitions that weigh on them and constitute them any more than they exist prior to the triangulation which they desire, excuse me, into which they enter. Desire receives its first complete objects and it's forbidden them at one and the same time. So the thing here is that the construction of Oedipus in this manner actually plays into how the first synthesis is going to create um, global persons, right? It makes that possible. We've got a condition here. We've also got that uh, the first complete object. So like, I think later on, they're going to walk this out more, but like a detached object, 
so something like the mother where like there seems to be an object of desire yeah you follow me with oedipus here is making um the form of global persons and perhaps even persons in this respect possible but also like making them mm -hmm. actualizing them yep uh, and i'm just going to dive into the next paragraph because it dovetails perfectly with that um we can therefore see the property the prohibition has of displacing itself, since from the start it displaces desire. It displaces itself in the sense that the Oedipal inscription does not force its way into the synthesis of recording without reacting on the synthesis of production and profoundly changing the connections of this synthesis by introducing new global persons. These new images of persons are the sister and the spouse after the father and the mother, it has often been remarked, in fact, that the prohibition existed in two forms, the one negative, having to do above all with the mother and imposing differentiation, the other positive, concerning the sister and requiring exchange. I have a moral obligation to take as a wife someone other than my sister and an obligation to keep my sister for someone else. I must give up my sister to a brother-in-law, receive my wife from a father-in-law. And although new Stacy's. Uh, is, is, what's the word there? Is my PDF broken? Stacy's? Is that the word? New Stacy's or relapses? All right. Stacy's or relapses are produced at this level, such as new forms of incest and homosexuality. It is certain that the Oedipal Triangle would have no way of transmitting and reproducing itself without this second step. The first step elaborates the form of the triangle, but it is only the second step that ensures the transmission of this figure. I take a woman other than my sister in order to constitute the differentiated base of a new triangle whose inverted vertex will be my child, which is called surmounting Oedipus, but reproducing it as well, transmitting it rather than dying all alone, incestuous, homosexual, and a zombie. Uh, great paragraph. There's the it. name of your new movie, Brutz. <laughs> yeah, incestuous, homosexual, zombie. I think Troma is working on that right now, actually. I mean, come on. What a time to be alive. What a time. It's a great, a, a great summary. Again, they're going to continue through this as we're diving through because we're going to get into the familial versus the alliant in a very strong way as we hit chapter three. So if any of that is, well, wait, why am I giving my sister away? What's this? What, what's their critique? They have a huge critique, a gigantic one. They're not there yet. Right now, we're simply discussing the process of desire formation, how the partial machines attach, how we learn what those desires are, and I'm putting that in big quotes that you can't see, and how the subject is produced. That's what these next few sections are about. So we're not fully there yet, but we're getting there. But it's uh, the, the two steps, the form of the triangle, uh, the second step ensures transmission of the figure. Yeah, and we see here how Oedipus, right, it's not a natural thing, there's a way in which the Oedipal inscription, it can't just go straight to the second synthesis, right? It's got to affect the first synthesis. So we see the production of the molar in this sense as taking on the either-or distinction, well, as taking on the global persons of Oedipus. So right where we see the father and mother, for instance, or the, the wife-sister here, right? The way that these um, global persons are constituted here is affected by the Oedipal, um, I guess we'll stick with inscription, the Oedipal inscription in that manner, 
which affects how it's going to work in the second synthesis and then back on the first. I feel like Ken has some thoughts here. Oh, sorry, I, I was talking and I was muted. Uh, go ahead, Kent, if you have, Ken, if you have something. All right. Um, I will continue. Sorry, I, I had to take care of, uh, I had to ban somebody, uh, which is not something I have to do very often, but occasionally it pops up. I will continue the next paragraph. Thus, the parental or familial use of the synthesis of recording extends into a conjugal use or an alliance use of the connective syntheses of production. A regime for the pairing of people replaces the connection of partial objects. On the whole, the connections of organ machines suited to desiring production give way to a pairing of people under the rules of familial reproduction. Partial objects now seem to be taken from people, rather than from the non-personal flows that pass from one person to another. The reason is that persons are derived from abstract quantities instead of from flows. Instead of a connective appropriation, partial objects become the possessions of a person and, when required, the property of another person. Just as he draws upon centuries of scholastic reflection in defining God as the principle of the disjunctive syllogism, Kant draws upon centuries of Roman juridical reflection when he defines marriage as the tie that makes a person the owner of the sexual organs of another person. One need only consult a religious manual of sexual causatry to see with what restrictions the organ-desiring machine connections remain tolerated within the regime for the pairing of people, which legally determines what may be appropriated from the body of the wife. I'm going to continue to the next paragraph. Clearer still, sorry, go ahead, Jack. Before you do, because I know everyone wants to read about Khan talking about sets, the reference there is from his Metaphysics of Morals, part one. So just like to point out, this is a really good example. If people are ever like, what is miraculating? Like th this is it. Uh, the, the partial objects now seem to be taken from people rather from the non-personal flows that pass from one person to another. Like that, that's the example of a thing miraculating from the process. Mm -hmm. We just need to tie in the body without organs or the socius there. They're talking about here on like, uh, uh, like the social regime of, of it, right? So the, these partial objects are seeming to come from other people, but uh, like it's the same way they, they talk about like how it seems like capital is going to attract more capital because like it seems as to be emanating from the body of capital, whereas it's actually the partial objects that make up the flow, the decoded flows of desires, which capital is appropriating for itself. Clearer still, the difference in regime becomes apparent each time a society permits an infantile stage of sexual promiscuity to subsist, where everything is permitted until the age when the young man in turn submits to the principle of pairing that regulates the social production of children. It is true that the Connections of desiring production were found to comply with the binary rule, and we have seen, we have even seen that a third term intervened in this binarity, the body without organs that re-injects producing into the product, extends the connections of machine nerves as a surface of recording. But here, no biunivocal process is in fact produced that would fit production into the mold of representatives. No triangulation appears at this level that would refer the objects of desire to global persons or desire to a subject. The only subject is desire itself on the body without organs, 
in as much as it machines partial objects and flows, selecting and cutting the one with the other, passing from one body to another, following connections and appropriations that each time destroy the factitious unity of a possessive or proprietary ego and Oedipal sexuality. It's a few great little lines in here. Um, there is no biunivocal process. There is, here, there, no biunivocal process is in fact produced that would fit production into the mold of representatives. Uh, we are talking specifically about the regime of desiring machines. That They don't get split off. There is no woman desiring machine. This is the real way to start thinking about this and how these concepts play with each other and play with, uh, in general, uh, psychoanalytic, schizoanalytic theory. There is no such thing as woman desire, man desire. It's not how it works. There is no such thing as gay desire in that sense. Every machines desire, they are partial objects connecting and producing itself. Uh, over and over and over. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I've got this uh, very nice. Uh, I, I think you, you're going to very much not uh, appreciate this, but I got this Dick Land quote. I think it's very, um, very useful. So, there I go. There is no more an individual Oedipus than there is an individual fantasy. Oedipus is a means of integration into the group in both the adaptive form of its own reproduction that makes it pass from one generation to the next, and in its unadaptable neurotic stasis that block desire or prearranged impasses. I love so that. I think, uh, no, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, I think that's spot on. It's, uh, there is no, again, uh, these are representations. These aren't desiring machines. We need to break them down. We must go further. He ba is basically what Deleuze and Guattari are always saying to all these people who keep breaking things down a little bit and then more and then more. It's like, we must go further. And uh, to them, it's the, the partial objects are that base level and there's no Oedipal partial object. That's not how it functions. The Oedipus, Oedipus doesn't like sit around and go, oh, here's a desire. Now you go that way. Now you go towards fucking your mom. That's not it. It's, Oedipus gives us a series of representations, and those representations are what shape, and it's the representations of mommy, daddy, me, uh, sister, family, nuclear family. These representations break down. They're the smaller part of that representation, and they're what sort of start messing with things. So the triangle of Oedipus, which is the next uh, paragraph, I'm just going to keep partially forward. The triangle takes form in the parental use and reproduces itself in the conjugal use. We do not yet know what forces bring about this triangulation that interferes with the recording of desire in order to transform all its productive connections, but we are able, at least, to follow abstractly the manner in which these forces proceed. We are told that partial objects are caught up in an intuition of precocious totality, just as the ego is caught up in an intuition of unity that precedes its fulfillment. Even in Melanie Klein, the schizoid partial object is related to a whole that prepares for the advent of the complete object in the depressive phase. It is clear that such a totality unity is posited only in terms of a certain mode of absence, as that which partial objects and subjects of desire lack. Consequently, everything is played out from the start. Everywhere we encounter the analytic process that consists in extrapolating a transcendent and common something. But that is a common universal, the purpose of introducing lack into desire, 
in situating and specifying persons and an ego under one aspect or another of its absence and imposing an exclusive direction on the disjunction of the sexes. I will leave a, a moment for everyone to take a moment, ask questions, say what you need. The only thing I wanted to point out while we're taking our, our awkward pause. <laughs> so earlier they said that the only subject is desire itself on the body without organs, inasmuch as it machines, partial flows, partial objects and flows, selecting and cutting the one with the other, passing from one body to following connections and appropriating at each time, destroy the factitious unity of a possessive or proprietary ego and edible sexuality. So we're seeing here how that, um, sorry, we're expanding this idea of the subject being the three syntheses and desire and how these um, function and take place, right? One of the moves they're making in this paragraph is to expand on that last point in the proceeding, which is that the partial objects don't result from a lost totality, right? Nor do they lack a totality. Can you say more about the last part? Because that's where I get mixed up. Sure. So we're seeing with like global persons. Um, yeah, I don't even want, I don't even think I need that. So let's just put it in the very simple aspect of the breast and the mouth, right? So when we're talking about the breast, there's a sense in which we can talk about the breast as a fragment of a woman's body, right? There's a sense in which we can talk about the breast as relying on a woman to be present, yeah. But I think for Deleuze and Guadri, when it comes to that first synthesis, and we're keeping it very simple right now, I realize that the breast connects to other things, just for to use their simple example. The breast is a partial object, doesn't result from a lost totality, and it doesn't rely on a totality um, to, to be a partial object. As in this perspective as a partial object, it connects with the mouth of a, uh, of a baby, right? Or perhaps a different mouth. And in this sense, this connection through desire is going to be one of flows and um, functional, like, uh, they say generation of flows, and I think like the consumption of flows, I think is the move there. In this sense, we don't really need um, the totality of a woman that directs the breast in this manner. The breast, because it's working with um, desiring production here, is connecting with the baby in the same way that that mouth is connecting with the breast, so as to basically be part of the synthesis. So we don't need the, um, the totality of... Uh, Another way to say it is, to put more in psychoanalytic terms, the mouth doesn't rely on the id of the baby to direct it or to create the desire that the ego will then move the baby to the breast instead of the cardboard, right? Likewise, the mother's um, unconscious wouldn't need that. Because desiring production is in this impersonal level and the subject is these, the, um, these flows in relation to the syntheses, the breast and the mouth are self-sufficient, right? They're partial objects in that manner, not resulting from uh, a break with their totalities and not needing to be fit into a totality of um, something that's been lost or something they lack. Thank you for that. I'm just trying to square it with what I know about Klein and Lacan. Um, and it, it seems like a major difference is this sort of um 
this realm of a representation that we're in. Um, because, you know, like you were pointing out, Klein sort of takes this process to unfold, ending in uh, like some sort of uh, evaluation of the object. And that evaluation is what dictates the relationship. So you have like a good breast or a bad breast or something like that. And, um, and so there's a, uh, there's a reification or whatever, uh, an instantiation of a, of a definite quality. Um, and Lacan spends his first like 11 seminars railing against this, that, that an object can have a, a singular quality be good or bad like that. And that that's not how any of this works. Um, but he does maintain that whole, um, like there was no totality to begin with, but somehow you get wound up in this experience or something, or you learn it through introjection that you've lost something. Right. The, The thing though, isn't that they're saying there's not, no totality to begin with it's that there's no totality to end with either Mm -hmm. like there's 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 not a totality that is yet to come that it is only the beginning part of like there's no totality yeah and the con says the same thing about the problem with the ideal ego so the ideal ego has that that sense that there is some sort of totality um but but it seems like fundamentally different scopes, and I'm just trying to get a taste for the difference. So thank you for letting me yeah. think it out. No, and I, I think, um, I mean, if you want to talk about Freud and Lacan, I'm going to read the next paragraph, and we're just going to go, because uh, we, have a, we have a little bit to get through still. Um, but I mean, the next paragraph begins. <clears throat> uh, such in the case in Freud. For example, for castration, for the second phase of the fantasy, a child is being beaten, or again, for the famous latency period, where the analytical mystification culminates, this common transcendent absent something will be called phallus or law in order to designate the signifier that distributes the effects of meaning throughout the chain and introduces exclusions there, whence the oedipalizing interpretations of Lacanism, uh, Lacanism, I don't, I hate that. It, I've never been able to say that word properly. This fire acts as the formal cause of the triangulation. That is to say, makes possible both the form of the triangle and its reproduction. Oedipus has, as its formula, three plus one, the one of the transcendent phallus, without which the terms considered would not take the form of a triangle. It is as if the so-called signifying chain made up of elements that are themselves non-signifying, of polyvocal writing and detachable fragments, were the object of a special treatment, a crushing operation that extracted a detached object from the chain, a despotic signifier from whose law the entire chain seems consequently to be suspended, each link triangulated. There we have a curious paralogism, implying a transcendent use of the syntheses of the unconscious. We pass from detachable partial objects to the detached complete object from which global persons derive by an assigning of lack. 
For example, in the capitalist code and its trinitary expression, money as detachable chain is converted into capital as detached object, which only exists in the fetishist view of stocks and lacks. Uh, I'm going to read the footnote very quickly where it says, uh, uh, one of the transcendent phallus without which the terms considered would not take up the form of triangle. It's from uh, Edmund Ortiz's. Uh, not going to anglicize it. In order that the necessary conditions for the existence of a structure in the familial institution or in the Oedipus complex to be fulfilled, at least four terms are required. That is, one term more than is naturally necessary. That's uh, the moment of lack, the introduction of this, the, the thing we're missing, the, the phallus in this situation. I think I'm just going to continue because they're going to dive right into the Oedipal Code. Uh, the same is true of the Oedipal Code. The libido as energy of selection and detachment is converted into the phallus as detached object, the latter existing only in the transcendent form of stock and lack, something common and absent that is just as lacking in men as in women. It is this conversion that makes the whole of sexuality shift into the Oedipal framework. This projection of all the breaks flows onto the same mythical locale and all the non-signifying signs, same major signifier. Quote, the effective triangulation makes it possible to assign sexuality to one of the sexes. The partial objects have lost nothing of their virulence and efficacy, yet the reference to the penis gives its full meaning to castration. Through it, all the external experiences linked to deprivation, to frustration, to the lack of partial objects take on meaning after the fact. All previous history is recast in a new version in the light of castration. I feel like it's pure Lacan. Ken? Yeah, I'm just yeah, I'm just trying to remember what he said about anti-production, because there's a line here to it. Um uh because they're they're talking about the phallus, but Lacan doesn't start with the phallus, right? Um, and so, I mean, it is the that idea of uh, all drives are virtually death drives. Um, that that in sex or any sort of connective creative activity, there's going to be destruction or disconnection or whatever. That it, that it, yeah, the the two aren't mutually exclusive. And I'm having a hard time parsing that. But yeah, this sounds like it's supposed to be uh, dedicated to Lacan. But Lacan, I mean, doesn't make... There is no lack in the real. The real is over full. And the lack only comes into place in, in trying to symbolize the real, trying to make some sort of totality. And that's the problem. And this is the problem that Lacan had with Melanie Klein, is that the... Um, or just even ego psychology in general is that it's alienating is that this is like the fundamental alienating movement to misrecognize one's enjoyment as being one's own that that you know i am the cause of my desire or i am uh i am this thing so i don't know that's where i'm at yeah i'm uh, who said it's uh, from Green? Uh, Andre Green wrote uh, that quote that they use at the end there. I'll have to look into that. I will find uh, translations and use of that. Uh, he wrote a, a piece called uh, 
living affect, uh, Oedipus in Africa, uh, things like that. Like he's got a few pieces on this that they seem to be taking from. So we'll, um, we'll run with that uh, afterwards. Anyone have any questions or comments? A lot of this is, uh, if you're not understanding it, it's, I'm just going to be like, Ken's going to be whatever. And generally it's okay to not fully understand a lot of what they're talking about with Freud. It's a, it's a way for them to position themselves and critique against what was very much the prevailing theories of the day. They're doing hard against Freud here and uh, they will be going hard against Lacan, not as hard, but pretty tough still. So it's about placing themselves against that. It's not as necessary to fully under them, I don't think. Uh, so it's okay if you're not fully grasping a lot of this stuff that they're talking about with Oedipus uh, and the triangulation and phallus and all that. It's a whole fucking thing. Well, um, the it's, it's basically the foreclosure of castration which is uh, something um, I think they are mentioning in uh, regard to the libido. Um, so, um, because we live in this capitalist society, we are subjugated to uh, the foreclosure of castration and we don't uh, have um, the f actually, I would say phallus, but it's actually an anal um, thing to have money to possess it and i um, would say that uh, to have the master's discourse you would uh, have a strong sense of your uh, anal drive um, which is actually um, beneficial to homosexuals i suppose but i am um, putting myself back on the leash and i'd say that it's actually not that that hard that three three plus one um signifying chain um around uh the phallus but it's actually because it is this it's negated to castration because of course we live in a society with women as well as men so to make this uh, for everyone basically there is a foreclosure which is uh, interjected, which is the castration, um, the foreclosure of castration. I, I don't think they named it, it foreclosure because they keep repeating, um, but they keep repeating it, um, how the phallus is detached. It's basically the foreclosure of castration, I suppose, um, which is um, a concept in, I think, Seminar uh, 20. Cool. Again, it's this is not easy shit, um, and it's a lot to dive into. So don't think that like this is not as necessary to understand fully because they again um, a lot of their philosophy, a lot of this writing comes from a place of a positive origination. If you're, for example, going to decide, oh, I want to go down the road and learn about Lacan, yeah, you really need to understand this shit because the act of negation and how foreclosure works and all of that is. I found it very difficult to dive into and I still don't fully grasp it overall. Um, but uh, they come from a place of basically a fully affirming, interesting direction. So you don't have to worry about it quite as much. Just, a, just, just my thought. Someone out there is going to disagree. I will move on to the next uh, thing. It's about lack and its history. That is indeed what disturbs us. This recasting of history and this lack attributed to partial objects 
How could partial objects not have lost their virulence and efficacy once they had been introduced into use of a synthesis that remains fundamentally illegitimate with regards to them? We do not deny that there is an Oedipal sexuality, an Oedipal heterosexuality, and homosexuality, an Oedipal castration, as well as complete objects, global images, and specific egos. We deny that these are productions of the unconscious. What is more, castration and Oedipalization beget a basic illusion that makes us believe that real desiring production is answerable to higher formations that integrate it, subject it to transcendent laws, and make it serve a higher social and cultural production. There then appears a kind of unsticking of the social field with regard to the production of desire, in whose name all resignations are justified in advance. Psychoanalysis, at the most concrete level of therapy, reinforces this apparent movement with its combined forces. Psychoanalysis itself ensures this conversion of the unconscious in what it calls pre-Oedipal. It sees a stage that must be surmounted in the direction of an evolutive, evolutive integration uh, towards the depressive position under the reign of the complete object or organized in the direction of a structural integration towards a position of a despotic signifier under the reign of the phallus. The aptitude for conflict of which Freud spoke, the qualitative opposition between homosexuality and heterosexuality, is in fact a consequence of Oedipus. Far from being an obstacle to treatment encountered from without, it is a product of Oedipalization and a counter-effect of the treatment that reinforces it. Uh, when they said uh, at the end of the last section, they said, we must find a cure for the cure. Uh, this is what they're referring to quite, quite a bit. Again, um, to say, they do not deny that Oedipus exists as a, as a complex. There are people out there who want to do these things and who feel this. There are people out there who have, who, there are global images. There are specific egos. Like these are, they're not saying that these things don't exist. They're saying that uh, they are not productions of, of the unconscious, that these things are not the base level, that the desires aren't in service of these things. So this is why you want to be careful about when we say like the breaking from psychoanalysis. The re-engagement with Freud is similar to Lacan trying to re-engage Freud very differently though, especially because like Deleuze and Guadri are not going to say we have, we figured out Freud, like we're his um, rightful interpreter. What their criticism accomplishes here, right? So we see in the very beginning, what a mistake to have said the it. Is desire in production the new id? It wasn't possible without the Freudian id to make this move, and yet it seems wrong to say that they're the same thing, to equivocate the two. We find ourselves immediately faced with a juxtaposition and a critical one of that. As we're going through this, right, we're seeing how their engagement with um, Oedipus, Freud, and psychoanalysis in this manner Right, the way they're, they're they're performing their criticism, they're not going to negate Oedipus, but they are going to affirm not only that Oedipus um, has its place in that, they're going to provide an account of how it's created, how it functions in its creation, which we're seeing here, how it affects the unconscious as Deleuze and Guadri are constructing it through the syntheses, and how those um, how these play back on one another. Right, this is really important because Oedipus does still have this affect, right? 
this even though it's a representation, it still displaces desires. We'll see later on in this chapter, and as we're seeing now, actually. With that being said, right, the task is create uh, as we talk about around uh, roundtables is going to be creating those uh, lines of escape in relation to that. I'm going to go ahead and read the last paragraph, and then we'll discuss. In reality. The problem has nothing to do with pre-edible stages that would still revolve around an edible axis, but rather with the existence and the nature of an anedible sexuality, an anedible heterosexuality and homosexuality, an anedible castration. The breaks flows of desiring production do not let themselves be projected onto a mythical locale. The signs of desire do not let themselves be extrapolated from a signifier. Transsexuality does not let any qualitative opposition between a local and non-specific heterosexuality and a local and non-specific homosexuality arise. Everywhere in this reversion, the innocence of flowers instead of the guilt of conversion. But rather than ensuring or tending to ensure, the reversion of the entire unconscious according to the anedible form and within the anedible content of desiring production Analytic theory and practice never cease to promote the conversion of the unconscious to Oedipus, form and content. We shall see in effect what psychoanalysis calls resolving Oedipus. This conversion is therefore promoted by psychoanalysis, first of all, by making a global and specific use of the connective syntheses. This use can be defined as transcendent and implies a first paralogism in the psychoanalytic process. For simple reason, we again make use of Kantian terminology. In what he termed the critical revolution, Kant intended to discover criteria eminent to understanding so as to distinguish the legitimate and illegitimate use of the syntheses of consciousness. In the name of transcendental philosophy, eminence of criteria, he therefore denounced the transcendent use of syntheses such as appeared in metaphysics. In like fashion, we are compelled to say that psychoanalysis has its metaphysics, its name is Oedipus and that a revolution, this time materialist, can proceed only by way of a critique of Oedipus, by denouncing the illegitimate use of the syntheses of the unconscious as found in Oedipal psychoanalysis, so as to rediscover a transcendental unconscious defined by the eminence of its criteria and a corresponding practice that we shall call schizoanalysis. So let's go right back to a question Bo asked in the beginning, right, which is how do we find the illegitimate and the legitimate uses? That's it right there, right? The transcendent and the imminent criteria are the differentiation that play into what will be paralogistic when it's transcendent and what will be syllogistic when it's imminent. Yes. Uh, and again, we're talking, there's three steps to the syntheses. This first one is about desire and what it connects to and partial objects and how they function. So when we talk about the difference of imminent versus transcendental, that's, that's how you, that's, when we get to schizoanalysis, which we have, a lot of you were around for when we did our summary of that, but this is this is one of those steps. This is what we're trying to do with our schizo project. Is uh, sorry, trend, uh, I said transcendent, didn't I, Jack? Transcendental. It always trips oh. me up too because it's, it's such a subtle thing. Yes, sorry, uh, I'm talking quickly. Transcendent versus imminent uh, would be the difference. But uh, to say again, though. Uh, everything else I was saying was right. That this is the difference between the proper use of the syntheses, the allowance of syntheses to connect as they do, partial objects to connect as they do, and produce 
as they do, versus that of the transcendent, which actually utilizes representation and demands of that, and isn't really where the partial objects are connecting. I am transcendence, yes, Joe. So that's not a bad pun for English being like your second, third, or whatever language. It's not, not bad. Uh, anyone have questions here? This would be the time. Uh, type them up in the chat. If you uh, want, we can happily unmute you. Uh, any questions on this section? Because we are done. It is time to discuss. Did we miss a question? Do we do anything? Because I'm happy to uh, uh, finish up and close out. Don't worry. I'm happy to do that. You want to go over how the new question bot works? Yeah, so we're trying a new, we have a new bot. Uh, the way it works is unique and a little different. We're trying to figure out how to keep, we've gotten a lot of people who have questions and setups. So uh, in the chat, you'll see me type a question. Uh, you type uh, tilde Q, and then you type ask, because you have a question you want to ask, you ask. Uh, uh, explain this whole section. And you'll get a little check mark. And then at any point, uh, those of us at the top can go excellent list. Uh, we answered Rimki's question. Uh, excellent. And then it's, it just keeps listing them. Uh, so we can actually keep track of what questions we've answered, uh, who's got things to say, all of that fun stuff. Uh, because we've been having a problem with questions getting lost in what is a very fast uh, chat. And it's only going to get worse over time. So. With any luck, uh, this gets you to a nice little spot where we can have conversations over time. And you can also do this other thing where you type uh, tilde H and you type up. That's uh, if you have something to say, put your hand up and then I can actually just find out who has their hand up because they want to say something. So if uh, I tend to be long winded, uh, Joe tends to be long winded between the two of us, we tend to spend six or seven hours talking and no one else gets a word in. Uh, raise your hand and we can kind of be watching when people raising their hands, someone else wants to talk, we can start taking breaks and allowing that. So we're trying to make it a more inclusive conversation overall. So uh, if this sucks, we'll find other bots. We're just starting. You want, Ken is asking, uh, what is the relationship between transcendental and representation? Uh, the transcendent uh, is... Desiring machines are by nature imminent. They connect to what they connect to. There is no thought. There is no desire around what they're connecting to. It's just the things that they're connecting to. The BWO operates as a bit of a goal for that. But at this point, we don't have representation. There's no, uh, a baby when it's first born uh, does not go, excellent, where is mother? I would like my milk. Uh, they do in comedies, uh, bad ones like Boss Baby, uh, sort of mock this and have this as a joke. Um, but the the nature of reality is that we have representations in order to deal with things, but desire doesn't operate on them. Instead, it operates like a baby's does, even when we don't think it does and we're nice and old and we think that we've created desire and we're all special. That's not really how it works. So representations are by nature transcendent. When we say, oh, it's Oedipus, uh, or the ego, or these other large-scale things that exist far beyond. It's, they don't. They're just representations. Uh, they're by nature transcendent. But they still have, they still do quite a bit. So to get into like some of the meat of this question too, we saw how there's a transcendent phallus, right? There's a transcendent um, signifier, despotic signifier. 
we're talking here about how um, an object gets detached, right? How that affects the assemblage so that things start to be, right? What it, the idea is that it would appear to be a lack of that which is detached, right? And this creates a transcendent use of the syntheses because now the argument is the unconscious is producing so as to satisfy that lack or to, um, right, so try and resolve it or to basically be constituted in that and in, in, in the sense of that lack, right? So in the sense of the phallus or to resolve the lack of the phallus, well, or to resolve that very lack of the phallus, right? With the despot signifier, we see a similar problem where part of the signifying chain stands above and meaning is distributed in that manner. So here we would have like the phallus, for instance. The meaning of the sign function of the functionalities that are distributed during the second synthesis, falling back on the first synthesis, right? On production itself. This is constituted through that um, transcendent signifier. So now the the way the unconscious is communicating with itself, to keep it simple, is now thought to be, and this is a parallelism, considered to be through this kind of privilege sign or this basic like a signifier that um, that where everything else is going to derive its meanings from. That the functions are all in service of the function which is where you see them to actually put the in um, quotation marks. We just sit with a long, awkward silence as we try to find out what is uh, happening. And if anyone has questions, I don't mind awkward silences at all, in fact. Um, Let's give, uh, since Ken asked a question, we can put him on the spot. Does that address your question? Do you have like comments? Yeah, it does address my question. Um, I'm still in a whirlpool of associations, sort of. Um, it's like, so where do um, Deleuze and Guattari fall on the topic of like meaning? Like, there there is no formal meaning in this molecular world, right? The, they very much value what can be done with a thing or the production of something over what does it mean or what does it express. Uh, so it's go to right? what you mean, Ben, or, or am I mistaken? It seems like what they don't like are these singular functions attributed to partial objects. Because like the, the phallus is meaningless. Um, and it only, in its case, it only has an effect by it being like a sort of signifier without a signified. Um, so the phallus might, um, the despondent signifier, right? There's a way in which those become, um, through their elevation, there's like a, a way in which their centralization in that sense or their transcendent aspect allows uh, one to derive that meaning from them, right? So all signifiers get their meaning through their relationship, through the, the transcendent. All things connecting, like the partial objects, get their meaning through the, the, the detached object of the phallus, right? But this would be paralogistic. Syllogistically, they're still working with those signifying chains in that, 
but this is in terms of functionalities, right? So we're seeing how when a flow um, like that of the, the 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 breast and the mouth, best example ever, right? The uh, the flow there, there's a way in which those two partial objects are going to take on functions, right? For them, that question of what it does, like Ben says, that's the proper question to ask when we're talking about meaning in that as opposed to asking what it is so as to place it basically through like um, another derivation, right? That's kind of what they're worried about is that if we ask the question of what it is and we place meaning in that sense, right? So I'll pick on phenomenology here, right? Is meaning only possible through the condition of a transcendent ego or a transcendent conscious? Is meaning only possible through a transcendent phallus? Similarly. Uh, Remke asks, uh... Uh, don't understand the title. Why is it called the connective synthesis of production? Does connective refer to connections between partial objects? I think I missed it. I mean, they, they don't say it directly that clearly, but yes, the, the connective synthesis is the, mo is the part of the synthesis where partial objects connect, and they're always connecting. They're basically always, always, always connecting, all of them, all the time, two tons of other ones. And it's the, the first thing, essentially, it's the first thing that happens. Uh, inside yeah. of uh, the setup. It's always starts with that. The The edge with it, and they'll get into this a lot more in the second and third, is that that moment of connection is also the moment of production. That it connection and production are wrapped together in this, where it's because it's connecting in that connection, it's producing. And then it actually is continuing to connect and produce, connect and produce, connect and produce, connect and produce over and over and over. It's this sort of self-fulfilling, cool little engine machine. They're going to call it also like a, a, a serial and infinite connection. Think like this is connected to that. And then that is connected to the next thing. And then that is connected to the next thing infinitely in both directions all the time. Those are making some good points there. We need to add one more thing, which is the brights, right? So during the connective synthesis, we have the flows which is going to be um, part of that connection between the partial objects. Those flows change in, in during that relationship, right? And they get um, differentiated. And when they get cut or broke with the, um, the, the assemblage, if we like, right? So partial objects come into the assemblage, partial objects leave the assemblage. The flows keep breaking and connecting in that manner too. Any other uh, comments or questions? Because I think we're nearing the end and uh, uh, we can uh, start wrapping down but raccoons have a bone in their penis uh, Jack just letting you know so get the hell out of here really yeah they actually have a bone in their penis how do you know that did you dissect a raccoon penis the, the shit the internet has taught me that is not only useless but also terrifying like raccoon dicks are like the, the least of it Leaving this part of the conversation in would be the most Delusian thing possible to do. All right, and with raccoon dick bones, we are going to close out. Thank you all very much today. Uh, thank you to our handful of viewers. Uh, no, that's they're real. They're horrifying. And uh, uh, I'm going to go ahead and close this out. What the fuck is with us? It's, uh, been, it's been fun. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining. And as always, this is a blast.